Let us begin our time with prayer. O Lord, our God, we give thanks for your ordinances and we pray that our experience of Christ in them would not be a fleeting and momentary thing, but that we would commune with Christ throughout this day and that even as we discuss the things of your kingdom, the history of your church, the principles of your word, that we would do so with an awareness of Christ in our souls, the hope of glory, and that we would be growing in our intimate knowledge of you, Father, as we study the truths that you have revealed as a way for us to know you. And we thank you especially for the doctrines concerning your church and concerning the Lord's Supper. Uh, We pray that as we discuss and meditate upon these truths that you would enrich our own experience in preparing for the Lord's table, in communing at the table, in growing in assurance. And also we pray that those that have not yet professed their faith would be urged to do so in sincerity and from the heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our next lecture in our series on the Federal Vision is entitled, New England's Halfway Covenant. New England's Halfway Covenant. And in this first lecture on this aspect of our overall topic of the Federal Vision, we're simply going to do a historical survey of New England's Halfway Covenant. And then, God willing, in our next lecture, we're going to seek to understand how the federal vision has really unfairly misrepresented the halfway covenant and made it a sort of whipping boy to promote their own unbiblical agenda with respect to church membership, with respect to pedo communion, and various other things. So in order for us to be able to make sense of the violent opposition of the federal vision to the halfway covenant, we need first and foremost to understand the history of this particular topic. So New England's halfway covenant. Now between 1643 and 1647, I trust most of us are aware, the English Puritans sitting at the Westminster Assembly composed and adopted the Westminster Confession of Faith along with the larger and shorter catechisms, which among other things outlined a theology of church membership and of communion participation. So as we're seeking to understand New England's halfway covenant, let's get a sense of our own background and the the confessional background that underlies the halfway covenant itself. So Westminster Standard. So here's some examples of the Westminster theology of church membership and communion participation. Larger Catechism 62. The visible church is a society made up of all such as in all ages and places of the world do profess the true religion and of their children. So the church membership in the visible church consists of everyone who professes the true religion Notice it doesn't just say true doctrine, but true religion. And we know from James, true religion involves our practice of being unspotted from the world, of being holy unto the Lord. It's a spiritual thing, not merely a doctrinal thing. But they must profess the true religion, and then also it includes their children. Larger Catechism 165, quote, Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament. And then it later goes on and says this, whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's, end quote. That word holy is W-H-O-L-L-Y, entirely. And, you know, as, as Edwards makes the point as he's discussing these kinds of issues, he says, if I told you I was going to give a discourse on... Robins, you would assume that I was talking about an adult robin, not an egg or a baby robin or something like that. 
And so when our confessional standards, and this is not just Westminster, but across the board, the general practice when defining baptism is to speak of it in terms of an adult baptism which comprises the whole scope of professing faith and entering the visible church, and it's on the basis of the reality of that professing Christian's inclusion that then their children are then included. So we can say that the children are baptized because of what takes place at the adult baptism. The adult professes faith and is professing to be entirely and only the Lord's, and that includes bringing their children into this covenant relationship in the visible church. So that's why they include this, even though we hold to infant baptism, Westminster held to infant baptism, but one of the reasons for infant baptism is that the parent has devoted everything to the Lord, and therefore they bring their children to be baptized as well. But understand, it's speaking here of an adult profession of faith, and the profession is an engagement, in other words, a promise to be holy and only the Lord's. Larger Catechism 173, such as are found to be ignorant or scandalous, notwithstanding their profession of the faith, and desire to come to the Lord's Supper, may and ought to be kept from that sacrament by the power which Christ hath left in His church until they receive instruction and manifest their reformation. So the the point that we're making here is that to be a communicant member in full standing in the church, not just a baptized child who's a member, but a communicant with full communicant privileges at the Lord's table, there must be a profession of true religion, which involves a professed engagement to be entirely and only the Lord's. And if there's any ignorance of these basic things or scandal that something in our lifestyle contradicts what we're professing, then we're kept from the sacrament until we manifest, that is, visibly manifest our reformation. In other words, we show the fruit of repentance. The assumption is that the elders of the church who can't judge the heart can look at the fruits of someone's profession of faith and consistent lifestyle or lack thereof. These things can be manifested and when someone's under discipline for them to be restored, I I hope we would all agree that the elders have the ability to examine the visible fruit in order to make that judgment call of whether that person has repentance in their heart. There's an objective standard, not infallible, but objective and valid. Confession of Faith 26, Section 2. Saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God. We've taken some, some excerpts here, so just note the ellipsis, the three dots. Fellowship and communion in the worship of God, which is to be extended unto all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, end quote. This portion of the confession cites Acts chapter 2. We could also see in this language the salvation language from Romans chapter 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So to call on the name of the Lord means saving faith in the New Testament. If you call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Romans 10. You see it in Acts chapter 2. Salvation language. That doesn't mean everybody in the early church was definitely regenerate and there weren't unbelievers, but it means that they all showed sufficient fruit that, oh, these people profess the truth and their lifestyle follows suit. They call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. So uh, to be a saint by profession, according to the confession, means that you have professed faith credibly. Confession of Faith, chapter 14, section 2. By this faith... So what, to profess faith, what kind of faith are we professing? What does it mean to profess saving faith? By this faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein. Stop here for a moment. It doesn't stop there. It doesn't say, confess that I believe everything in the Bible and I affirm the Westminster standards and that's it. That's not a profession of saving faith. Because saving faith involves action. So it goes on. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, 
sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace, end quote. Now, notice saving faith. If I profess, I believe in Christ, I call on the name of the Lord, I'm going to profess my faith. If I'm professing biblical faith, saving faith, then I'm going to be professing I have accepted, received, and am resting upon Christ alone for my right standing with God, justification, forgiveness of sins, imputation of righteousness, acceptance with God, and sanctification. In other words, I profess to be working out my own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that God is willing and working within me so that I will will and do unto His good pleasure. So I'm professing that I am being sanctified. I am professing to be bought with a price. 2 Corinthians 7.1, Therefore, beloved, since we have these promises at the end of chapter 6, that God is our Father and so on, therefore, uh, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So it implies a belief that I am born again. Not full assurance. We're not saying you have to have full assurance to profess faith, but something of assurance. In other words, if somebody says, I believe everything in the Bible and I believe the Westminster Standards, and you say, do you have a personal relationship with Christ? Are you a temple of the Holy Spirit? And they say, no. That's a, you can't come to the Lord's table if you're not professing. Even if you say, listen, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm struggling with assurance. But it, when Jesus asks Peter at his lowest point, when he's struggling with assurance, Simon, do you love me? He's able to say something, right? Jesus says, do you agape me? He says in Greek, I phileo you. Okay, but there's something there. He loves Christ. He's willing, you know all things, Lord. You know that I love you. So even at his darkest moment, he's not going to flat out say, I refuse to call myself a believer. I refuse to call myself someone who is converted, but I want to come to the Lord's table because I show up at church and I'm not a drunkard or a homosexual. I'm not scandalous. Okay. Confessionally speaking, you have to be professing faith that you're being sanctified, that you're a sanctified believer, even with all your weakness. Do you love Christ? Yes, I do. There's something there, some seed of assurance. Confession of faith, 18.4. Quote, true believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted. Goes on, yet are they never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by the which uh, in the meantime they are supported from utter despair. End quote. So once again, Simon, lovest thou me? He struggles. His assurance is failing big time. He's in the darkness, but he he still does say, yes, Lord, you know. I believe. Help my unbelief. Okay, so we're not dealing with people who profess outward principles of doctrine who disclaim any type of profession to be converted. Okay, that's the Westminster Doctrine. Second point. In 1648... The New England Puritans, led by John Cotton and Richard Mather, that's a typo there, it says Richard Matter, but it should say Richard Mather, adopted the Cambridge platform, affirming the doctrinal content of the Westminster Confession of Faith, minus something similar to the American Revisions, chapter 25, chapter 30, chapter 31. These are independent Congregationalists, so they don't affirm everything in Westminster when it talks about the church and the state. But these were confessional Calvinists for the most part. Okay, so they affirm Westminster as far as they can, along with a form of Congregationalist church government and discipline, which proved highly influential among later Congregationalists, such as John Owen and the signers of the Savoy Declaration in 1658, 10 years later. So the Savoy Declaration is basically a plagiarized version of the Westminster Confession by the independent Congregationalists. And so it's doctrinally very sound. They just tweak some things because of their different doctrine of the church. Still Pado-Baptist. You also have the uh, London Baptist Confession of 1689. Very similar. They sort of uh, 
turn the Westminster Standards into and the Savoy Declaration, building on those two, they come up with a Baptist version. So in 1648, right on the heels of the Westminster Assembly, the New England Puritans adopt the Cambridge platform. They affirm Westminster for the most part, and then they add this form of Congregationalist church government and discipline. Let's look at their doctrine of church membership and communion participation. Cambridge Platform 2 6. Quote A congregational church is by the institution of Christ a part of the militant visible church. That's the visible church on earth. Consisting of a company of saints by calling, united into one body by a holy covenant. That would be similar to our covenant of communicant membership, actually. For the public worship of God and the mutual edification one of another in the fellowship of the Lord Jesus, end quote. So they believe that the church consists of a company of those who are saints by calling. What does that mean? Well, let's look at chapter 3, section 1 of the Cambridge Platform. By saints, we understand such as not only have attained the knowledge of the principles of religion, so it's not just intellectual, and are free from the gross and open scandals, so not just ethical, but also together with the profession of their faith and repentance, walk in blameless obedience to the word, so as that in charitable discretion they may be accounted saints by calling. And then they quote the way the apostles address the early church, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, called to be saints, Philippians 1, verse 1, Colossians 1, verse 2. They're saying it's not just intellectual, not merely ethical, not merely behavioral, but it involves a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if we could put it in modern language. You're professing that you believe and you repent and you desire to walk in that blameless lifestyle. They may be accounted saints by calling, then the proof text, though perhaps some or more of them be unsound and hypocrites inwardly. So not saying it's a perfect church or it's ever going to be a pure and perfect regenerate church. They're just saying that everybody who comes to the Lord's table and understand that's what they're talking about, full communion, everyone who comes to the Lord's table has shown evidence, they've given a profession, a credible profession with a corresponding lifestyle that points to these things. But there could still be hypocrites, and there will be, and we'll see something of that. It says, because the members of such particular churches are commonly by the Holy Ghost called saints and faithful brethren in Christ, and sundry churches have been reproved for receiving and suffering such persons to continue in fellowship among them as have been offensive and scandalous. The name of God also by this means is blasphemed, and the holy things of God defiled and profaned, the hearts of the godly grieved, and the wicked themselves hardened and helped forward to damnation. So when you don't have church discipline, in other words, when you let people come to the table that don't fit this description, then look at all these bad things that happen. Continuing the quote, the example of such does endanger the sanctity of others, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, end quote. But then notice chapter 3, section 2 of the Cambridge Platform, quote, the children of such, that is of the communicant members, who are also holy. So by saints we understand, one, those that are communicant, and secondly, the children of such communicant members who are also holy. Now, as we build on this foundation, as we move forward, I just want to say there is an intramural Presbyterian debate that goes back to the, really the origins of Scottish Presbyterianism on down through the centuries, where some Scottish Presbyterian groups believe that it is legitimate to baptize only the children of communicant members, and that would be our position, because when you take the covenant of baptism, when you present your child, you're reaffirming your credible profession of faith. So that would be our position. That's the position that I hold. But there are other traditions within the Scottish Presbyterian spectrum that have held that, and we'll see this coming into play in New England to some extent, that if there are children who are baptized in their infancy, but 
they never come to profess faith beyond the intellectual and the willingness to come to church, but, but they don't actually profess to be Christians and profess to live as Christians in any kind of spiritual way, then their children can still be baptized, and even though they're not communicant. Okay? So that, just understand, that's an in-house intramural debate between different Presbyterian denominations. I'm not going to get into, I mean, there's some big names that have held the second view, Samuel Rutherford, and, and many, many of our dear Scottish Presbyterian friends today hold this. So we don't hold that, but let's be, that's not the, the issue that, that I'm trying to call out here. We would all agree that a profession of saving faith is required for communion, for communion. That's our focus here. Now, Cambridge Platform, Chapter 4, Section 3, this Quote, this form of a visible church is the visible covenant, agreement or consent whereby they give up themselves unto the Lord. You see the building on larger catechism 165. There's a visible covenant and they're giving themselves up to the Lord to the observing of the ordinances of Christ together in the same society, which is usually called the church covenant. And then section 5 this form then being mutual covenant, it follows. It is not faith in the heart because that is invisible. So they're saying the basis of this unity at the Lord's table among the communicants is their common confession of this covenant of church membership. Again, that's, how, that's our form as well in, in the RPCNA. So we would agree with them in certain respects. Again, we're not independent congregationalists. We're not affirming everything these guys say, but, but there's a f- substantial unity between us on that point. Not that we're saying the requirement is faith in the heart. We can't tell that. But we can see if people take the covenant and have a life that corresponds to it. Cambridge Platform, chapter 12, section 1. The doors of the churches of Christ upon earth do not by God's appointment stand so wide open that all sorts of people, good or bad, may freely enter therein at their pleasure but such as are admitted thereto as members ought to be examined and tried first whether they are fit and meet to be received into church society or not. The eunuch of Ethiopia before his admission was examined by Philip whether he did believe on Jesus Christ with all his heart, end quote. Now, they're not saying you can't walk through the doors and, and attend worship, but they're saying for, again, understanding context, to be admitted to full communicant standing in the church there has to be examination of a credible profession of faith, as seen with the apostles. Chapter 12, section 2. The things which are requisite to be found in all church members are repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. It cites passages from the book of Acts. And therefore, these are the things whereof men are to be examined at their admission into the church, and which they must profess and hold forth in such sort as may satisfy rational charity that the things are there indeed, end quote. So understand, rational charity, you see the balance there. When someone professes their faith and you look at their lifestyle, as far as you know what that lifestyle is, and you ask them questions and they reckon with the church covenant and the various aspects of the Christian life, okay, if you have to set aside your reason in order to admit them, there's a problem. So there has to be rational, common-sense discretion as to their basic sincerity, but also charity, knowing elders can't judge the heart, but they're judging the fruit, and they're judging it charitably. In other words, you're not suspicious. You're not, try, you're not a detective trying to unravel and, and discredit people, but you are rational and thoughtful in asking important questions and listening to the answers. What are you looking for? Now, many people misrepresent the American Puritans. We're going to see this. If we had started with the federal vision version of what, what these people believed, you would be shocked right now at the contrast of what people are saying about the American Puritans versus what their own documents actually testify to. But these, these people are not demanding that, that you give some elaborate description of all the fine points and details of your conversion and all of this mystical minutiae and maybe then possibly the church might let you come to the Lord's table. Notice, it says rational charity and they're to look for 
Repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. It's very objective. It's very clear. It's straightforward. Now, listen, they go on even further. Well, before we go on further, let me, look at the, let me say something about the footnote. Atheist historian Edmund Morgan, in his book, Visible Saints, which I don't have the page numbers because I got it on Kindle. This is the Federal Vision, one of their favorite historians, but this is what he says. Quote, Outside the Church of New England stood not only the mixed multitude of wicked Englishmen and heathen natives, but also the visibly good who understood and believed the doctrines of Christianity and lived according, accordingly, but who lacked the final experience of grace. Morgan hates the Puritans, okay, if you didn't know that. But he, he's saying outside those people that couldn't come to the table, it was not only the pagan perverted heathens, but it was also good people who believed Christian doctrine, but who hadn't experienced conversion. He goes on, quote, the New England churches made no differentiation among these seemingly different men. He's upset that they didn't make a third category, right? You're either saved or you're not saved. But Morgan, as an atheist, of course, wants, wants to unravel true religion. And so he, he's upset that they didn't differentiate between different kinds of unsaved people. Goes on, quote, Indeed, the New England ministers devoted a good deal of time to showing that there was no difference in the eyes of God between the vilest sinner and the civil man who obeyed God's commands outwardly but did not love God in his heart. The only distinction among men in the eyes of God was between those who had saving faith and those who lacked it. Therefore, the civil and the uncivil alike were kept outside God's church, end quote. And again, we're talking about communion here. So they're trying to keep out people that even in the analysis of Morgan, who is violently opposed to the Puritans, he acknowledges the people they're trying to keep out are people that don't love God from the heart and are unconverted and don't have saving faith. But in examining people for saving faith, notice how gracious they were. Cambridge Platform 12.3, quote, the weakest measure of faith is to be accepted in those that desire to be admitted into the church. Because weak Christians, if sincere, have the substance of that faith, repentance, and holiness which is required in church members. Romans 14.1, the weaker brother. And such have most need of the ordinances for their confirmation and growth in grace. The Lord Jesus would not quench the smoking flax nor break the bruised reed, but gather the tender lambs in His arms and carry them gently in His bosom. Such charity and tenderness is to be used as the weakest Christian, if sincere, may not be excluded nor be discouraged. Severity of examination is to be avoided, end quote. That is their doctrinal statement on communicant examinations. And yet the historians and the federal visionists who attack them, we'll see that next time, Lord willing, they present them as being harsh and severe and fencing the table to the point of breaking the bruised reed and quenching the smoking flax. But that's not the case. Now, one of the, one of the criticisms they have, I say next time, we may spend another week on this one, but, but one of the paradigms for somebody's personal testimony that was used by elders of that day, and since they were Congregationalists, sometimes it was... Sometimes it was the ministers, sometimes it was the whole congregation, but for our purposes, the people interviewing them had a paradigm for what a credible profession or testimony of faith entailed. And one of the influential materials that that helped them to gain that paradigm was William Perkins in his Cases of Conscience. Perkins has 10 steps of conversion. In other words, common elements of a personal testimony. Now, this gets raked over the coals. Ten steps of conversion. Oh, this, this complicated, these ten steps, and, and people are truly converted, but they're being turned away because they're not meeting, they're not jumping through all of these mystical hoops of the Puritans. Bah, humbug. But listen to what these ten steps are, okay? First, step one, here's the word, often with affliction. Now, people mock this, but 
what he's saying is the prodigal son started to think about the father's house when he was under affliction. And many people in their personal testimony say, I heard the gospel a bunch of times, but then certain things started happening in my life. I went through a difficult time. I started thinking about my life and and, and I, I went back to that gospel that I had heard, or I went to church soon around that time, and I heard the gospel, and I was saved. I mean, Perkins was a pastor. He was dealing with people. He knows, just like myself and our elders know, this is a common thing that people say. He doesn't say you have to experience affliction, but he says you hear the word, and often it's with affliction to get your attention. Secondly, the law reveals to the person the difference between good and evil, Okay. That's pretty simple. Thirdly, the person is convicted of their own sin. So it's not just intellectual and ethical, but wait, I'm a sinner. I've committed the sins that are described in the law. Fourthly, the person fears God's wrath. Now, it's not to say there's some specific degree of fear, but they recognize the wages of sin is death. I'm headed for hell because I've broken God's law. Okay, that's pretty simple. Fifthly, the person then seriously considers the gospel. I hope that steps in there. Number six, they begin to trust in Christ. Number seven, they overcome doubt, despair, and unbelief, which often comes in. The slough of despond, you believe, and then you start to question whether that is a reality in your life, but by God's grace, they overcome that. Number eight, they rest on the promises. Number nine, there's an evangelical sorrow for sin. In other words, they begin to look at sin in their life, not just as something that endangers them to go to hell, but they they say, I hate sin because God hates it. I love God and I hate evil. And they're, they're sorry for their sin. Okay, I hope that's there. Number 10, seeks to obey God. So, so here's how you get from being dead and lost in sin. You know, you hear the gospel and eventually you're a converted saint seeking to obey God. My friends, that's vanilla. That is vanilla. Okay? That's vanilla. That's not even vanilla bean. That's vanilla. That's the most basic, those 10 steps. If somebody is completely out of accord with the substance of these 10 steps, they should not be coming to the Lord's table. Not saying it's going to always fit an exact paradigm, but even a covenant child coming to faith in Christ Okay, are they going to hear the word? Are they going to understand the difference between good and evil and realize that they're evil and consider the gospel? I mean, this is vanilla. This is basic. And anybody who's afraid of these 10 steps, we should be afraid of them. Any minister or group of ministers that tolerates an utter rejection and bashing of these 10 steps, we should be very afraid for for those people to be continued with the, with the federal vision, but we'll, we'll, we'll continue here. Cambridge Platform 12.7. The like trial is to be required from such of the church as were born in the same or received their membership and were baptized in their infancy or minority by virtue of the covenant of their parents. When being grown up unto years of discretion, they shall desire to be made partakers of the Lord's Supper unto which, because holy things must not be given to the unworthy, therefore it is requisite or required that these as well as others should come to their trial and examination and manifest their faith and repentance by an open profession thereof before they are received to the Lord's Supper and otherwise not to be admitted thereunto. So children who are baptized, they come to years of discretion In order for them to commune, they need to profess their faith and their repentance, just like the person who was baptized as an adult. It goes on, quote, Yet these church members were so born or received in their childhood before they are capable of being made partakers of full communion. It says they have many privileges which others, not church members, have not. They are in covenant with God, have the seal thereof upon them, vis-a-vis baptism. And so, if not regenerated, yet are in a more hopeful way of attaining regenerating grace and all the spiritual blessings, both of the covenant and seal, they are also under church watch and consequently subject to the reprehensions, admonitions, and censures thereof for their healing and amendment as need shall require. End quote. So, Edmund Morgan summarizes this in your footnote. Quote, the Puritans demanded that when the child of a saint grew up, he must demonstrate to the church that he was indeed saved. 
until he did so by the same kind of examination that adults seeking membership were subjected to, he should not be admitted to the Lord's Supper. So said John Cotton, Richard Mather, and the Synod of Divines, who between 1646 and 1648 drafted the exposition of Puritan beliefs and practices, which is usually referred to as the Cambridge Platform, end quote. So this is, again, this is basic stuff. Children have to profess faith and repentance in a credible manner, and then they are charitably regarded as born again, not with some infallible judgment, but they're charitably regarded as the Lord's believing people, and they come to the table. Okay, so that's thus far the first two main points. Now, third point. Now we're getting into the controversy. Six years later, 1654 to 55, Questions arose as to whether the children of baptized, non-professing, non-communing members may receive baptism, eventually resulting in the Boston Synod, 1662, which agreed to permit the practice, later nicknamed by its opponents the Halfway Covenant. In other words, you have people that are baptized in the church, they never profess their faith and repentance, they never come to the table, but they live outwardly with a Christian worldview affirming Christian doctrine, not professing to be converted, but they're outwardly moral and ethical and religious and orthodox, and they now want their children to be baptized. They're not communicant, should we baptize their children? And as I said, that's a question that has come up, legitimate question that has come up in the history of Presbyterianism. So, so that question arises. You can see the quotation from Charles Hodge. I'm not going to read that, but you can see that he's just saying what I just said in terms of what that controversy was about. Then Charles Hodge, the second quote from Hodge, quote, the Synod of Boston decided in favor of the following seven propositions. We're going to look at five of them. One, they that according to Scripture are members of the visible church are the subjects of baptism. That's straightforward confessional biblical truth. Two, the members of the visible church, according to Scripture, are confederate, that is covenantal, has nothing, you know, anyway, don't, don't let that word get you down, but they're confederate visible believers in particular churches and their infant seed, i.e. children in minority, whose next parents, one or both, are in covenant, end quote. So they're saying that all members of the visible church are visible believers, communicant members, they're all visible believers, and there's going to be debate about this point. Does the phrase visible believers refer to people who give evidence of being a true believer? They profess to be a believer and their life corresponds so that there's visible evidence that they have true saving faith. Or does the phrase visible believer refer to an entirely different type of faith? Not someone who says, I have saving faith and their life corresponds so we visibly acknowledge it, but somebody who says, I have visible faith. Not claiming to have saving faith. I have visible faith. Visible faith means that visibly I'll show up in church and visibly I will assent to biblical doctrine and visibly I won't get into hot water I won't get into trouble and scandal. I won't give the church leaders a hard time. I'll be submissive. I have visible faith. Not saying I have a personal relationship with God. Not saying I'm going to read the Bible and pray every day and lead family worship and evangelize the people around me. Not saying that I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God. Oh, you've got me all wrong. I'm a visible believer. See, see the difference. Visible evidence of saving faith versus someone who professes an entirely different kind of faith. Now, they're referring to the first of those two, but this is going to take us in, in a wrong direction here pretty quickly. So they, they speak of visible believers. Thirdly, the infant seed of confederate visible believers are members of the same church with their parents and when grown up are personally under the watch, discipline, and government of that church. So the communicant members, the confederate visible believers, okay, their children are under church discipline. That's point number three. Our, our denomination would agree with that. Point four, these adult persons are not therefore to be admitted to full communion merely because they are and continue to be members 
without such further qualifications as the word of God requireth unto, thereunto. End quote. So the adult non-communing baptized members, you can baptize their kids, but you can't grant them access to the Lord's table unless they credibly profess their faith and repentance as specified back in the Cambridge platform with all the grace and tenderness that is specified there. So if they can't even meet that standard, can't come to the table. Number five, this is the decision of the Synod of Boston in 1662. Number five, church members who were admitted in minority, understanding the doctrine of faith and publicly professing their assent thereto, not scandalous in life, and solemnly owning the covenant, that is of baptism, before the church, wherein they give up themselves and their children to the Lord and subject themselves to the government of Christ in the church, their children are to be baptized, end quote. So you have people, and it's not as common in our day because of the cultural dynamic, but back then, being a church member was a big deal. Even if you didn't come to the table, being a church member or not being a church member could affect your wealth and outward estate, your status in the community. So it was a big deal to at least be a member. So there were lots of people who intellectually, morally, and in terms of religious practice would be involved in the church, but would not profess to be filled with the Spirit or to be true, to true converted, regenerate Christians seeking first the kingdom. And so they're saying if you have these intellectual, moral, religious people who don't even claim to be converted and don't show the fruit, then, and they're not even claiming that, then... They, you can baptize their kids, but you can't bring them to the table, okay? Now, this is where things, uh, and, and we're not going to get through our whole outline, but let's get a little bit before we finish, get some yardage here. Point number four, perhaps as early as 1677, the Reverend Solomon Stoddard, minister at Northampton, changed everything. In the years leading up to Stoddard's ordination at Northampton in 1672, both he and his wife entertained doubts regarding his salvation till one day while administering communion, he experienced what he believed to be his conversion. You can read about that in Ian Murray's biography of Jonathan Edwards, who is Stoddard's grandson. But Stoddard and his wife questioned whether he was saved, whether he truly had a relationship with God, or if it was just all moral and intellectual and religious. And so, at the communion table, he's converted. This has a huge impact on the rest of his ministry and on New England for many years to come. Between 1677 and 1720, so he ministered over 50 years in Northampton, the Northampton communicant membership role increased during that time from 76 to nearly 500. Now, there was a rapid increase of population, but nowhere near to that extent. So the membership, the communicant membership, the people coming to the table increased from 76 to nearly 500 following Stoddard's decision to welcome halfway covenanters to the Lord's table. Now, the opponents of the halfway covenant who said you shouldn't baptize the children of these people that are not communicant members, okay? Those people called it, well, they're just taking a halfway covenant. You know, they're not really professing saving faith. They're just agreeing to be nice and play nice in the church or whatever. So it's called the halfway covenant for that reason. But Stoddard began to welcome halfway covenanters to the Lord's table regardless of conversion. You can read about that in Murray, pages 87 through 89. Now, in loosening the standards for communion, Stoddard rejected the position of the Cambridge platform, which limited communion to those who credibly professed faith and repentance according to the rational charity of the church. He also rejected the halfway covenant. He, his was a whole way covenant. If you're intellectual and ethical and you show up at church and, and you're not scandalous and you even claim to be unconverted, there's a place for you at the table. Stoddard openly acknowledged that if his view were properly implemented, most communicants would be unconverted. Listen to this quote cited by Edwards from Stoddard, his grandfather. Quote, this is Stoddard. Indeed, by the rule that God has given for admissions, 
if it be carefully attended, more unconverted persons will be admitted than converted, end quote. So he's not saying don't break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax. There's no smoke coming from the flax, okay? He's just saying, let's bring in the unconverted to the Lord's table as long as they're ethical, outwardly non-scandalous, orthodox people. Stoddard taught his parishioners that their profession of faith did not involve a claim to have saving faith, meaning that the church gradually became filled with orthodox, outwardly moral communicants who did not even profess to be converted. And they were only orthodox for a while. I mean, New England was ravaged with all kinds of doctrinal defections and heresies moving forward because the church opened the floodgates when this practice became popular from Stoddard's influence, opened the floodgates on unconverted people at the table and eventually in the pulpit. And so heresy and unbelief prevailed. So he taught them that when they profess their faith, they're not actually professing to have a saving relationship with God through Christ. Listen to Edwards again, footnote number nine, quote, but in such churches, neither they're publicly saying that they avouch God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to be their God, and that they give themselves up to Him and promise to obey all His commands, nor their coming to the Lord's Supper or to any other ordinances are taken for, in other words, he's saying they're not taken for, expressions or signs of anything belonging to the essence of Christian piety. But on the contrary, the public doctrine, principle, and custom in such churches establishes a diverse use of these words and signs. In other words, it's double talk. They've redefined the words. Quote, people are taught that they may use them all, these words, and not so much as make any pretense to the least degree of sanctifying grace. And this is the established custom. So they are used and so they are understood. He goes on, and hence they cease to be of the nature of any pretension to grace. And surely it is an absurdity to say that men openly and solemnly profess grace and yet do not so much as pretend to it, end quote. So they're not even claiming to be converted. Now Stoddard's position was grounded in his belief that the Lord's Supper is a converting ordinance by which unregenerate people, as long as they're cleaned up, you know, the seven, the, the seven demons came back, found everything nice and tidy, okay? It, it's a converting ordinance by which unregenerate, doctrinally orthodox, outwardly moral churchgoers may be brought from death to life, just like he was. You see the influence of his own experience. Edwards says this, and we're, we're going to uh, conclude here. We won't go to our next section. But I'm going to read footnote number 10 from Edwards. Quote, Whereas the doctrine taught by Stoddard is that sanctifying grace is not a necessary qualification and that there is no need that a person himself or any other should imagine he is a person so qualified. The assigned reason is because it is no qualification requisite or required in itself. The ordinance of the Lord's Supper is as proper for them that are not so qualified as for those that are it being according to the design of the institution, a converting ordinance, and so an ordinance as much intended for the good of the unconverted as of the converted, even as it is with the preaching of the gospel, end quote. So how do we evangelize people? We preach the gospel to them, and if they're really cleaned up, we invite them to the Lord's table to be converted. And I submit to you that the history of New England was so much the worse for this practice, which Stoddard popularized. Now, next time we're going to then bring in Edwards and how he opposed this practice and promoted what we're going to see is the position of Reformed Presbyterians historically. This is the position that William Symington teaches in his classic work, Messiah the Prince. And this is the position of our denomination, of our session, of our church. This is how we handle uh, profession of faith and how we deal with baptized children, so on and so forth. So there you see the halfway covenant, and now you see the halfway covenant has been undermined by Stoddard and next time we're going to look at how Edwards rides in to save the day in some sense. I think his writings over time saved the day 
in many respects, but of course, like Moses in round one of his effort to liberate the Israelites, unfortunately, Edwards was rejected by his people. Does anybody have any questions before we conclude? And I think once we, I'll take that question in a second, once we look at the federal vision with this background, you're going to see why we had to establish all these points. Yes, go ahead. Did Roman Catholicism and Lutheranism have any influence on the halfway covenant? I would say this, in Edmund Morgan's work, and pretty much across the board, it's the Anglicans that have the influence. So the American Puritans are separatists, they're Congregationalists, they sometimes do overemphasize the regenerate character of the church. I mean, that's their reputation. Whether that's fair or not, I think their standards are actually pretty solid. So realistically speaking, they're reacting against Anglican nominalism, where, you, where being a church member and coming to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper was not viewed as identical with professing to be converted or living a godly life. So the, the Anglican church, similar to Rome and similar to the Lutherans probably in some ways, was very nominalistic. So they're reacting against that. And do some of their ministers sometimes perhaps overreact? I'm sure they do. But what I want to point out is that in their reaction to Anglican nominalism, which I think we'd all reject, I hope, their standards are sound and balanced and charitable. And when you read Edwards defending the, the practice that, that the Cambridge platform sets forth, he's balanced and charitable and compassionate. So, but yes, I think they're reacting to Anglican nominalism. Any other questions? All right, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that when we come to these questions, we have a goodly heritage from which to learn. Uh, those whom your spirit has anointed and blessed as teachers and instructors in ages gone by. We thank you that you've preserved these things, their teachings and their confessional documents, these things that your spirit enabled them to preach and teach. That You've preserved them for us today to learn from them, to evaluate as teachable Bereans, looking and searching in the scriptures to see if these things are so. We pray that as we study the history and then later as we seek to evaluate some of these things scripturally, that you would give us wisdom, that we would hold fast to what is good, cling to what is good, and abhor what is evil. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.